It is, uh, it is a joy and a privilege uh, to be with you today. The, uh, it, it's also nice to have a place to visit on Sunday that uh, is not four hours or five hours drive from home. So that's a, that's a wonderful benefit for us. Uh, my wife Terry has been the driver now for 12 weeks as I have a boot on my right foot and uh, broke that something like 12 weeks ago. I, I suppose that makes the most pressing theological question of the day not how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but how long can a bishop preach on a broken foot? And there are probably folks who are hoping the answer is not very long. And that's okay. I'm not offended. <laughs> it, uh, it is a joy for us to, to be here and... Uh, I've been sharing as we've gone across the diocese and in various congregations just what a privilege it is and, uh, and how it's been uh, enlightening for me to be actually living out and experiencing what uh, one of my mentor bishops, Bishop Bill Murdoch, uh, spent quite a bit of time talking me, with me about in this new assignment. Uh, in case you're not aware, uh, I am a bishop who is still wet behind the ears. Uh, I was consecrated on February 13th of this year. And so your prayers are always appreciated now and for the next five or ten years, uh, every day, three times a day, if you please. Um, I need a lot of prayer. My wife will testify to that. Uh, but one of the things that he talked with me about, he said, Mark, I know how you're wired. I know how you think. I know how God has used you in ministry over the decades. And you're going to be tempted to think about this, this role as being a bishop as I've got all of these, uh, these things that have to get done and these duties that I have to do and decisions that have to be made and people to be put into place and, and all of those things, to be sure, are responsibilities that a bishop has. But he said, the thing you're going to have to come to realize is that the role of the bishop is, is more than just what you do. It's about who you are. And it's about who you are for the life of the church. And he says, you're going to have to come to understand that the bishop is supposed to be the one who embodies the unity of the church, both in time and space. And so it's significant that bishops are consecrated in historic succession. And it's, it's a reminder to us that we are part of one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and it goes through the ages the same Lord Jesus Christ, the same Holy Spirit. And so we're to represent that and remind folks of that just by showing up. So if, if that hadn't dawned on you yet, this would be a great time for that to dawn on you, okay? And then also the embodiment of unity across, across the geographic spread of the church, this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. See, one of the things I already said wrong was I talked about visiting here, and I'm not really a visitor um, I discovered that, that when you believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, you can never be a visitor in church again. You're always in your home church. See, that's not the way I was raised and the church and denomination I grew up in. Your home church was the, the one little place you went on Sunday in your hometown. And then every place else you were a visitor. But when we really start to understand the implications of one holy Catholic and apostolic church, you suddenly discover you can never be a visitor again. So every Sunday I get to be in my home church. So thank you for welcoming me in my home church this weekend. 
Uh, it's, it's been such a delight even yesterday meeting with uh, the folks who are going to be confirmed and meeting with uh, the lay catechists who are going to be commissioned, meeting with your clergy. And uh, I just want to say a word of appreciation in terms of how we've been received and cared for, but just a tremendous word of appreciation. Uh, St. Anselm, did I say the name right? I, I helped pick it right, so I better say it right. Uh, St. Anselm uh, is, is a really bright spot in the diocese. It's a really bright spot in the kingdom of God. Um, you, you have done an amazing job for a, a young church plant. And of course, we give, we give glory to God for what he's doing because he's the one who builds the church. But it's also fine and dandy to appreciate the clergy and the mission council, vestry, all of the folks, the laity. It, it takes a, a whole community of faith to be an expression of the church. I love talking with Father Sean yesterday and when he said that the, the, the strategy, the idea, the thinking behind this was we're, we're planting a church, we're not starting a service. That's really important because too many times when we think about planting a church, we just think about starting a, a service on a Sunday. And to see that there are disciples growing, there are folks being confirmed, there are lay catechists being commissioned, there's wonderful ministry. And I, I'm just so delighted to, to be able to appreciate that publicly and to celebrate it with you. Well, I suppose you'd like me to start preaching so then I could get done preaching. I heard two amens, so in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be confirmed. Uh, so I've been, I've been processing especially the, uh, the gospel reading and thinking about this encounter that, that Jesus is having now in the days as he's approaching Jerusalem and approaching the cross approaching his, his substitutionary death for us, his sufficient sacrifice. And uh, as he's nearing the cross, he's encountering all of this opposition from many different quarters in the religious establishment. And if you begin to read down through the previous chapter and this chapter 12 as well, you discover the names of all these folks the, the, uh, the chief priests and the elders and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There, there were all folks who had leadership in the nation of Israel, but they all had their own particular vested interests as well in terms of how they thought the faith was to be practiced and to, uh, and, 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 and to be carried out. And so it's in the midst of all of these opposing factions who really loved, the word says, they loved to dispute with one another. Um, there's still a few of those folks around today, I've discovered. Um, they they love to dispute with one another, but what they loved to do as much as that was they loved to dispute with Jesus. Uh, they, they all had desires to, uh, to try to trip him up and question him and call into question who he really was and what his authority might be. And, and that's the context for this particular passage that was, was read this morning. These different opposing factions who came with these questions. And we read many times in, this, in, in Mark's Gospel and the other Gospels that, that many of the questions that were asked, it's very clear, it's, it's described in Scripture, that they were questions that were disingenuous to begin with. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to catch him. They were trying to find some reason to 
to try to discredit who he was and, and his ministry. And so a lot of these questions were questions, more questions of entrapment than enlightenment. They, they were more about trying to prove a point than to actually shed some light in the situation and have greater understanding about the mind and the purposes of God. But this one scribe who comes up to Jesus, it, it's interesting. You can read it one of two ways. It says that, that while all of this disputing was going on, he saw that Jesus answered these questions really well. And that's what prompted him to ask his question. Now, I don't, know, I don't know if that was he saw that he was answering these questions so well he thought that this guy really had something worth hearing, or if he was just impressed with his ability to answer questions from all of these disputing factions. Regardless, it seems that there was something not, that was not disingenuous about his question, but something much more sincere. And so he asks this question about which of the commandments is the greatest. This, this was not a question that was unique to him. This was a question that was often asked of the rabbis in Jesus' day. You see, God had given the Ten Commandments, and then the, the Jewish leaders and the rabbis and the Pharisees had proceeded to expand those into multiple hundreds of statutes and ordinances. Most of the rabbis uh, settled on the figure of 613. Uh, how they got to 613, I don't know. But uh, that, was, that was their number. And so they would often have this, this discourse. What's the greatest of the commandments? If we could narrow this down to the heart of it all, what, what would it be? And many times the Jewish leaders and the rabbis would have this conversation. And so it's not unusual that he would ask Jesus this question. So there's, there's something of an admirable quality about this question that's being asked. We, uh, we have three children. Uh, our oldest daughter, our oldest is our daughter Elizabeth, and then we have two boys, Andrew and Aaron. Um, we were missionaries in Taiwan for 10 years. Uh, our daughter Elizabeth was a year old when we went, and then our two boys were made in Taiwan with American parts and labor. And uh, our, our middle son had, uh, had some learning uh, challenges and disabilities. He's ADHD, he was on the spectrum with, with Asperger's syndrome. This young man asked me more questions in a day than anybody has ever asked me in most years that I've been alive. But they were not disingenuous questions. He had this incredible curious mind and he just wanted to know things. And, and questions are extremely valuable. I've been taught that the only way you get the right answers is if you ask the right questions. And so I think there's that kind of admirable quality in what this scribe brings in his question of Jesus. And so Jesus has an answer. This question is, I think, akin to the question that Jesus was asked in Mark chapter 11 by the rich young ruler when he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, the Jewish mindset was the way you inherit eternal life is by keeping the commandments. So what commandments do I need to keep? What's the most important one? So his question was about that. Jesus' answer started to move the whole conversation in another direction. So Jesus answers the question, quoting from the Old Testament reading today in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, 
which is, which is one of the key prayers of the nation of Israel to this day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he tied Leviticus 19.18 to it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. This is what's reflected in 1 John chapter 3 when the apostle says, if anyone says they love God, but they turn their neighbor away when they come to him in need, how can the love of the Father be in them? Because the love of God and the love of those made in the image of God always go hand in hand. And so in his answer, he begins to point to something that's very, very important. He points to the unity of God. This key, this key understanding in our Judeo-Christian heritage, there is one true God. But there is also this understanding of the, of the nature of God. This one God, as we understand, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, the, and how relational His character is. And so what Jesus is doing by His answer is He's, he's moving this man to think less in terms of what I do and more in terms of who am I in relationship with? What is the heart of the God I serve? How am I in right relationship with Him? Because ultimately, Jesus knows that when we love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's really, really hard to disobey. It's really, really hard to treat others poor, poorly when we truly love God and truly love our neighbor as ourself. Augustine said it this way in one of his homilies. He said, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. Because if you, if you love God, if you truly love God, then what you'll do, what pleases you, will be what pleases the Father. What cares for other people made in His image. So, Jesus, by His answer, is, is turning the, the, the content of the whole discussion to a much more relational one. Everything about the kingdom of God is built in relationships. Everything about the kingdom of God is built in relationships. Jesus came to restore our relationship with the Father that had been broken by sin. It's about the restoring of that relationship. And then Jesus, in addition to talking about this relational character and nature of God and starting to think about things in those terms, then goes on to say that the key aspect in that relationship is a love that is wholehearted. In the, in the passage in Deuteronomy today, in the passage in Psalm chapter 119, and in this passage as Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, you find this phrase being stated over and over again. You shall love the Lord your God most days. You shall love the Lord your God when it's convenient. You shall love the Lord your God as long as it doesn't interfere with the other things you like to do. Everybody should be objecting strenuously at this point because the Scripture says none of those things. You shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All of it. Wholeheartedness. And all of your mind. And all of your soul. Wholehearted devotion. 
The psalmist says the same thing. He begins talking about, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who keep the commandments of the Lord. And the very next verse is, Those who seek Him with their whole heart. Those two things go hand in hand. The more I love God, the more I'm enabled to seek Him with all of my heart. The more I love God, the more I'm enabled to say, I want to do the things that please God. Terry and I have been married for 40 years. We've discovered that love means thinking of what's good for the other person. Thinking what helps them and doesn't hinder them. We're not perfect at it, but we're getting better. Give us another four decades. We'll make some progress. But this is, this is the heart of it, this wholehearted love for God. He goes on to say, I, I've stored up your word in my heart. What does it mean that we store up his word in our heart? Um, well, we memorize scripture. That's a great thing. Is everybody in favor of memorizing scripture? That's a good thing. Why do we memorize scripture? Do we memorize scripture just so when the time comes we have the right answer? We memorize it because the Word of God clearly illustrates and helps us understand and grow an awareness of what's, what's the heart of God. What is His nature? There's a quote by A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, who said, a right understanding of God will solve 10,000 lesser problems. If we truly know who He is, His Word reveals His character. And we... We come to know Him deeply within our spirit. That's what the word means when it says, these things I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It has that meaning of hiding or storing up, but it also has the meaning to esteem, to value. I value Your Word, Lord, because Your Word makes me understand Your ways and Your character and Your nature, who You are and who you desire to be in my life. Wholehearted love is really important. Um, before I came to know Jesus really personally, in a marked and assured way as the Savior and Lord of my life, uh, I was uh, an obstreperous young man. I was introduced that way one time as a new believer by one of my fellow pastors, and he said, I understand that Mark was quite an obstreperous young man, you might need to look that word up. I did. Um, I said, if I knew what that meant, I'd punch you in the mouth. And he said, that's what it means. <laughs> in those days, I loved a lot of things. Mostly, I loved myself. Mostly, I loved the things that made me happy, the things that made me feel good. I didn't give a lot of thought to what benefited other people. I just loved things that benefited me. You know, I, I once heard this, this saying, and I found it to be true. It says, a man who's wrapped up in himself makes a really small package. That was the world that I lived in. I was so focused on me having fun and feeling good and, and having everything that I wanted in life. But I soon discovered what the Proverbs say after living that way for a number of years. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And I started to look around me and I found that everything in my life had slowly broken and twisted and eroded. Relationships were strained if, if they existed at all anymore. I brought great grief and pain to my, the hearts of my parents and my family. 
And it was in that brokenness that I came before the Lord and I surrendered to know Jesus not only as the one who would forgive my sins, but the one who if I would submit myself and surrender myself to Him would lead me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. That I would learn this life verse that I could trust in the Lord with all my heart and not lean anymore on my own understanding and acknowledge Him in all my ways and He would make my path straight. And so I had to, I had to get the, the love of my life reoriented. And since it was my, my college baseball coach who led me into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where I came to know Him truly as my Savior and my Lord, that had to begin to be, be expressed in, in everything that I did. And so I took my, my team baseball cap and, I, and somebody had given me this idea and so I wrote three letters in it. J-O-Y. And it stood for Jesus, others, and you. And if you keep that love straight and you keep those priorities right, you'll come to know the joy of the Lord in your life. I still have that cap laying around somewhere. It's really dirty and it doesn't fit my head anymore. But I can't bring myself to get rid of it. Because it, it, it's one of those anchor points in my life about what wholehearted devotion needs to be. This is why these passages in the Scripture are so important to us. David in Psalm 27, this one thing do I desire, that I may be in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. David again in Psalm 86 as he prays, Lord, unite my heart to fear Your name. And some translations say, give me an undivided heart. Jesus, when He talks about the importance of our eye being single, knowing that wholehearted love and devotion for God. You see, um, the Scriptures tell us that in the last days, there's going to be a last days love problem. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says in the last days, there's going to be a love problem. And that love problem is this. People are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, Lovers of all sorts of things, but not of God. And because there's all of these different directions where their love flows, they, they start to have all these other behaviors of being unappeasable and argumentative and, and arrogant and proud. This is the last day's love problem. When I start to love my opinions more than anything else, uh, I have really bad fellowship with other people when I start to, to love a political ideology more than anything else, it creates tremendous strife. When I start to love all these lesser things, everything begins to get diluted and diverted and eroded in my life. But when I can stay in this one place by the grace of God and love the Lord and love those who are made in His image, it begins to open the door to the reconciling power of the cross of Jesus Christ in every direction. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to because we can't do that on our own. Human weakness cannot fulfill the love and desires of God. The passage in Hebrews is a reminder of that in the totality of the book of Hebrews where the writer is reminding us of the superiority of Christ and His priesthood and His sacrifice and His covenant because the, the first covenant and the first priesthood and the, 
and, and all of these things could never fully atone for sin and never fully set things right because of the weakness of man, because the sinfulness of man. When Christ came, the perfect high priest, who was the perfect sacrifice, he accomplished this for us. And so, as, the, as this passage ends, and I, I may not have made it clear enough, I'm getting ready to land this plane now, so take hope. Take courage. Take heart, little flock. Little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven. So, he says, after all of this, he looks at him and he says, I perceive that you are not far from the kingdom of God. On any given day, I think that's one of the most exciting verses of the Bible or one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It's really exciting to think that somebody's getting really close to coming into the kingdom. It's really frightening to think that the person is not yet there. And who knows when the day and the hour is. We have, a, we have a very dear friend that I've known for the last 16 and a half years that we've done ministry with and had in our home and loved. And he recently traveled to the States to do ministry and totally unexpectedly he contracted COVID just after he got his second shot. And within a week he deteriorated to such an extent he was on a ventilator and within another few days was gone. And nobody would have ever imagined it. It's, I still can't imagine it. We were talking on the way up today and I said to my wife, I still can't believe that Yanni's going to be with the Lord. None of us know the day and the hour. I, th I think all of us in some ways imagine, you know, we, we know the way it will happen and, and at least in my mind, I'm going to die very peacefully in my sleep. But I don't know if that's true or not. I do know what is true is today's the day of salvation. If you're, if you're near to the kingdom of God, if you've, if you've sensed the heart of the Father reaching out to you, if you've been moved in your heart by the, the understanding of the love of Jesus Christ that He would pay the penalty for your sins and give His life on the cross as a substitute for you, if you've been drawing near by faith, please, let this be the day. Let this be the day that when you leave here, you're not, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're in the kingdom of God. Say yes to Jesus. Receive His forgiving grace. And so, we need help in this regard. We need the strength that only the Holy Spirit can give us. This is what, what Peter was talking about in Acts chapter 15 when they were, uh, when they were discussing about how the Gospel had come to the Gentiles. And some of those who had been Pharisees previously were talking about all the laws of Moses that they wanted those people to have to follow. And, and Peter basically says to them, are you out of your minds? Why would you want to put something on them that we have never been able to do ourselves? He said, but I'm here to testify that when I was among them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and it was the grace of God that touched them and changed their lives. This is not of works that we have done. It is by the grace of God. And, and he, he evidences it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is enabling them to say yes to Jesus. This is what Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 8 when he says that, that none of us have ever been able 
to keep the commandments of God according to the strength of our own flesh. But it's only those who walk by the Spirit of God, who have that Spirit of adoption in them, who know the love of the Father, and then keeping His commandments is not burdensome to us. It is the fulfillment and the fruit of love. This is why what we're going to do here in a few moments is so significant. Because folks are coming to be confirmed and what we're praying for is a strengthening and a stirring up of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because the Spirit of God is the one who bears the fruit of love in our lives. The Spirit of God is the one who sheds the love of Christ abroad from our hearts toward other people. That's Romans 5. I discovered early on in my Christian life, there were some people that were really hard to love. There were probably some people around me who made the same discovery about me. And I actually, I actually found myself trying really hard to love somebody that I, that I had real problems with. And, and I, I just, no matter, it seemed like the, no matter how hard I tried to love this person, everything they did bugged me even more. And I remember the day I came back to my dorm room and I fell down on my knees beside my bed and I said, Jesus, I need you to help me love, and I called him by name, because I hate him. That's called honest praying, by the way. I didn't want to hate him. I was trying really hard to love him. I just discovered that within me I lacked the strength and capacity to do it. I was fallen and broken and sinful, but forgiven. But somebody pointed out to me in Romans 5, there's this beautiful verse that says, when we're reconciled to the Father, we have peace with God, and the Holy Spirit sheds the love of the Father abroad from our hearts. And I said, Lord, I'm going to need you to love him through me. And something changed that day. Something changed that day. And the Lord gave me a new set of eyes. And I began to see Him as a different person. And I can honestly say that, the, that it came very quickly that I suddenly found that I loved this man. That's what the, the grace of God does. That's what the Spirit of God does. And so as these folks come today and as we pray for a stirring up of that work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, we pray... That, that that will be our prayer for each and every one of us. By the way, the, the question, the theological question we started with, how long can a bishop preach on a broken foot? Too darn long. But here it is, folks, and I always remind folks of this. In a confirmation service, there can be no spectators. There can be no spectators. We're all in need of a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. May He bear the fruit of love in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is first and foremost love. Love for the Father. Love for His Son, Jesus Christ. Love for the blessed Holy Spirit. And love for every man, woman, boy, and girl created in His image, loved by Him. Holy Spirit, come Help us, fill us, strengthen us to walk anew in this wholehearted love of the Father. As we close today, I'd like for us to pray. Uh, 
Deacon Mark, could you hand me my prayer book, please? In in thank you so much. In the uh, in the occasional prayers in our Book of Common Prayer, there is uh, a, a wonderful prayer that touches on this very thing. It's on page page 672. You might want to become familiar with this. Perhaps Father Sean has already pointed this out to you. It's, it's prayer number 89. It's a prayer for seeking God by someone by the name of Anselm of Canterbury. Teach me to seek you. And as I seek you, show yourself to me. For I cannot seek you unless you show me how. And I will never find you unless you show yourself to me. Let me seek you by desiring you and desire you by seeking you. Let me find you by loving you and love you in finding you. And all God's people said, Amen.